0: Welcome to the Think Education podcast. My name is Chris Hill and today I am joined by a colleague. It's funny, I used to think I was quite international and, um, and then I started reading Cheryl's bio and I realised, no, actually uh, my international experience uh, uh, is quite uh, limited compared to, uh, to hers. So it's, it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Cheryl Yu SFHEA, um, practitioner, educator, consultant, uh, and all round, I think, international higher education guru. So it's a a great pleasure to have have you on, Cheryl. Um, Just to sort of introduce her more formally, uh, Dr. Cheryl, you left her previous role uh, as Director of International Development at the University of the Creative Arts earlier this year in 2023, where at that department she created the international department from scratch to recruiting and managing over 50 staff within three years, and that's three COVID years. So that's, I think that's, that's a different concept of years as well. Uh, in her capacity there as head of school, she also ran international pathway programs, English courses at UCA, international student recruitment, student mobility, t and the delivery of language and pathway programs. Um, in terms of T&E uh, experience, um, see if I can get this whole list uh, right. So Cheryl led and developed t projects in mainland China um, with Xiemen University in Hong Kong, in Pakistan, in Singapore, in Cyprus, in South Korea, and I'm, I'm sure I've missed, I've missed others uh, out. Previously, Cheryl held the position of assistant dean academic at Birmingham Institute of Fashion and Creative Art, uh, Wuhan Textile University, part of Birmingham City University, where she led a team of 30 academics in running three creative undergraduate programs with a student population of over 600. So hopefully we'll talk a bit more about that. She was also co-founder of that institute. Um, before this, she worked at Winchester School of Arts, part of the University of Southampton and the University of Central Lancashire. As a practitioner, extensive experience in developing and running TNE partnerships, marketing, student recruitment, recruitment even, and uh, support. Um, in addition, you know, as an academic, she's also supervised PhD students and publishers and I think everything else we can think of. Um, and her PhD, which we're going to hopefully touch on towards the end, focused on the inequality in Chinese higher education and its relation to students' internal mobility. Um, Cheryl, it's a, it's a great pleasure to to have you on and, and thank you very much for taking the time to share some of your thoughts and reflections. Um, I wonder if if I could start. It's actually maybe just a a curious question because a lot of your TNE experiences, expressly in the arts, which is sort of uncommon, right? I mean, most TNE tends to focus on. Most international education tends to focus on say, the more quote-unquote traditional subjects. Um, I wonder if you just have some reflections on on all the work you've done in the arts field and, and how that's perceived and, and you know because obviously based on the numbers you've had a, a lot of success in this so you know just if you could talk us through some of that experience and journey. Thank you so much Chris. Uh, actually
1: recently have these really reflecting and thinking about how really how international everything can really be I think that's a really, really big question. Um, just to come to your question around uh, TE in the art space. Actually, I started my first job at the University of Central Lancashire, where I was supporting hundreds of business and uh, uh, intercultural students and come to study in the UK. So, so that gave me a, 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 what you say, it's traditional business students on the TE program. But my first uh, uh, interaction uh, with uh, art students was when I started working at uh, Winchester School of Arts, where I was supporting over 800 students um, on its uh, China campus or China joint programs and two programs, 800 students. So I would say e in art space has its own spatial scene. Uh, And challenges as well as opportunities. Uh, Because of the discipline, um, actually, arts uh, in a way it shares a global language. Hmm. So that makes the English and learning experience quite uh, unique in many ways. But again, um, sometimes, in particular for teaching students on arts programs coming from China, they also have. Uh, a lot of challenges around the language issues. So I think it's quite uh, uh, unique in its own way, uh, opportunities and the challenges.
0: Yeah, um, I, I wonder if you if you had any thoughts on, because we, we talked about this bit before, about uh, t and not just being about access, but also being about value and, and impact. I, I'm wondering, in terms of the, the student pathway, um, through a t and E arts degree compared to say a, a pathway through as you said an engineering or a business or maybe a computer science degree, are we recruiting sort of different types of students from different locations you Now, obviously you, you said that the learning experience is, is as you say is going to be is going to be quite distinct um, Is there something about the types of students or the the, the pathways themselves, given that it's a, an arts framework
1: um I would probably use the um, China as a as their case study. So in China, um, when when universities recruit students through a national university entrance exam, so typically all the students, they have to do national exam. At the same time, for a student who wants to do art programs, uh, they have to do additional courses, so they have to have uh, Arts exam as well Hmm. so when a university no matter tne or chinese arts uh, institutes when they recruit students so they would look at both the arts exam as well as the other other uh, chinese math or national exam so that they would i would say sometimes for certain institutes the arts elements uh, is uh, Counts as quite high percentage compared to the uh, national entrance um, exam, so that's why it's quite unique uh, by itself.
0: Wow, that's yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, uh, uh, you know, as you're using the the China example, um, and sort of you know a lot of the the, however we tend to phrase this, stereotyping, traditional thinking, expectation. You know, it's it's a very sort of traditional education market, it it's, you know, sends obviously tremendous numbers of students from China to, to multiple countries for, for T&E. Um, so, but the, the, the T&E arts route is seen as um, not just a viable route, but I mean, it's seen as one where students will come back and, and will come back to work or will continue to expand their, their sort of education and career abroad. How, how, does it, how is it viewed back at home? I know that's a very big, broad question, but, you know, just a sort of a reflection.
1: (laughs) Uh, I will say um, in this uh, Tianyi space, actually, this needs to come back to the international education. You know, when Chinese students, uh, they come, they choose UK education, no matter coming to study in the UK or through Tianyi, while the key attracting elements is around the teaching and learning, in particular around the teaching pedagogies Mm -hmm. and so in china for instance as was in some of the other asian countries the teaching is rather um, teacher-centered or where the students take a passive approach or are guided step by step so their active involvement is quite limited so so the UK education becomes so attractive, and outside so of in addition to many other elements, of course, is around the teaching pedagogy that allows students to think, to resolve a problem in a guide in a student-centered approach. So that is quite uh, one of the main reasons, um, uh, of say TE and UK education has been so popular. Um, internationally.
0: Okay, okay. So, um, is the arts um, pathway, is that something that you've, you've focused on within mainland China, or you've also seen in, in other countries you recruited in your previous you know, professional experience, you recruited from other countries as well with the arts? I mean, this is a sort of a, a not growing, but a, a, a real value-added um, element?
1: Um, so 10e um, not only 10e probably let's uh, come back to arts sure. and global mobility and I would say a number of countries are really uh, changing as well so well, for instance India and um, we have some more and more students who are taking um, arts disciplines um, of course traditionally um, also South Korea as well um, yeah, Singapore. So actually, I I would say it's really, really growing yeah. <laughs> as as a discipline, and um, that is also related to the creative industry and global globally. Uh,
0: that's very interesting. When I used to work in Malaysia, um, and the art, stroke, social science subjects were. Was sort of opening up within the campus, um, you know, a campus that had been very traditional in terms of, um, you know, mechanical engineering, you know, computer science, business, etc. A lot of the the language or art subject had to be aligned, so you'd you'd fi- you'd find something where you could do modern languages with business tourism, you know. So you, you sort of you were doing an arts or a social science degree, but you'd added on a, a very traditional one. Um, and for us, the way we understood it was, um, certainly in a lot of T&E programs, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't recruit students. You know, the the phrase was that you recruited parents and you were recruiting parents with expectations of what their children would do and, and the more traditional view of a value degree. But I mean, that's obviously changing. I mean, we, we have lots and lots of engineering graduates without any jobs around the world. We have, you know, it's, it's sort of moving. Um, it's very interesting to 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 hear this movement from your from your experience. Um, I'm wondering then, because um, I, I read a, a recent piece that you that you put up on LinkedIn, and we'll, you know, obviously link to that about uh, the Vietnam market. And I was really interested to hear your, your reflections on because I know you've done a, a lot of work for, you know, with market intelligent reports, um, particularly for UK higher education institutes, thinking about new markets, thinking about expansion. And i'm interested to hear your your reflections on you you just mentioned india obviously india's a you know a topic that comes up again and again within within t and e um i am yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on on where maybe the the sort of emerging or or interesting areas for t and e might be and, and and why we might want to to think about those would um, i before i go to the
1: you- Geographical location. I would say just a quick reflection on my observation of T E overall. Um, UK T E as a sector, I would say has really, really grown during the last uh, twenty plus years. Um, but during the last two or three years, even though we have seen the number, uh, is increasing, but I, I really question about the. Uh, how does that translate to different universities because the number when we look at the number reported uh, by UUKI that also includes the online mm. and distance uh, education especially given that uh, a big number of universities uh, have all impact on digital education so how really this has really uh, shifted digital education contribute to the e as well so So I just, uh, just some observation around that space is also around the uh, impact as well. So I guess in moving forwards, from what I have observed is uh, uh, new emerging markets not really, really looking into branch campuses as a concepts. Even though branch campus is defined differently by different stakeholders, but generally, I would say the um, reputation uh, for the receiving countries uh, are a big factor. So that would be in India or in Egypt, uh, of course, in China as well. Uh, I would say at the moment, probably less in Milan. Um, but I guess that is, I, I imagine that would be a trend or a new direction and uh, focus on branch campuses.
0: That's, it's interesting because a, co- um, a question my colleague, uh, Professor Judith Lammy, those who, who listen will will be very familiar with her. Um, she often asks um, guests that we have their views on the branch campus model because it was something that pre-COVID, and this is sort of to paraphrase Judith, pre-COVID, you know, that it felt as if the, the branch campus model had mainly, had made perhaps run its course and, you know, there was less interest in expanding and, and you know, whether or not as a result of perhaps COVID and, and you know, universities wanting a physical presence somewhere and, and we're worrying about, you know, student mobility or, or, you know, complete lack of mobility. And Judith is always asking this question about, do we think that the branch campus model is, is maybe coming back? And, and you're saying that, um, you know, one of the key drivers there is the prestige and reputation for the the host country. Is that, is that, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, it's interesting because i mean uh, we 've had this conversation before i mean i work in in Dubai, and the way we uh measure as branch campus is perhaps different from you know from other countries and so it's this brings us to a point we 're going to talk about i think in a few minutes about definitions and and what those definitions mean for understanding um, so what what are your um and, and i mean i I completely agree with you in terms of of how we need to think about the space because you know should t and e just be expanding exponentially and and why you know so I suppose that the first question should be my first question should have been rather which new markets could we be going for um not just from a UK perspective but from a global perspective to should we be looking for new markets or what's what's the rationale behind the expansion um is that is that maybe a better question <laughs> yeah
1: yeah absolutely and I would say um, each university uh, is different, so you cannot, everybody shouldn't be doing the exact same. So I would say university needs to look at strategically what's uh, what's the word they position TE in relation to all other activities. So not only TE, but also how is this related to their international students recruitment, but also how is this related to their and global social responsibilities and UK students' outbound mobility, as well as even digital education. So, really think about in you know, a more holistic way that how TE can play a role in all elements of a university or services of a university. I think that is uh, something that uh, a lot of universities should really, really think about. Then, when we think about what's the role we want team to play, then we can decide what kinds of uh, projects or what kinds of uh, level or geographical location we want to go about, and how is that so your subject discipline is aligned to the local place as well? So it's not uh, only you come mm. or one one side's uh, decision. So I would say it's really. And complex, but also really time needs to spend the time and efforts to reflect and review what we do as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a fantastic point, and it's not one that, from conversations I've had with colleagues in you know multiple countries, that I'm entirely sure is is happening. I, I think TNE tends to be a a thing done over here by universities rather than you know central to you know an overall strategy or or if it is it's then maybe not you know it's centralized but it's not devolved across the the different sort of faculty structures um what, what's your sense of why okay we're talking about UK universities why why do UK universities engage in T&E not why should they but why why do they at the moment what's particularly bearing in mind the point you said which I think is entirely relevant is what the, the universities are offering is it relevant to the countries that are receiving it because that's that's a it's a necessary but often a secondary question at least traditionally it was now i mean host countries are a lot more um, powerful in in the sense of what they you know regulate and what they offer and what they what they allow but um, so why there
1: should be so, First of all, they absolutely needs to work on Tianyi. I would say that is an absolutely, absolutely, and uh, must. Um, I uh, this is also related to the uh, global trends that we have witnessed is around how the international mobility is uh, shifting to a more regionalization and even deglobalization. So, this is way how UK university can remain to be relevant in 20 or 30 years time when the students are not coming to the uk from let's say from global south come to the uk but if they are staying in their region so how would you be able to still be there and uh, um, be part of the player the global player i would say and also uh, again is coming back to the international education What does uh, international education really mean uh, nowadays? Of course, um, I think a definition is a very, very interesting thing. Uh, There are so many different definitions around uh, what what does uh, international higher education mean. It is uh, often defined uh, in the global north, but it is also practiced so differently uh, at different countries too. For instance, one of my colleagues, and um, he he works on paper. He interviewed the, uh, a very large number of universities in China, and he came up with a definition of internationalization. So according to him, the internationalization in China means that we learn from the developed Western countries, then we'll be on the equal footing to compete with the Western countries. Hmm. And again, is. Uh, well, so I I would say that is why TINI is so important for UK universities to look at the long term and to become uh, more relevant and uh, even impactful in twenty or thirty years' time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um, I mean I think that this notion of more regional activity, um, you know, we we've seen. TNE host nations become TNE sending nations. Um, you know, we we've seen uh, a greater sense, particularly within ASEAN, of of sort of mutual recognition and you know attempts at sort of cross border uh, quality assurance and qualification, you know, movement, etc. And um, uh, and then we throw in things like cost of living. We throw in cost of education. We throw in security. We throw in uh, you know some of the things that students will face whether it's discrimination or you know whatever it might be when they travel and you know and then you throw in on top of that the the issue of covid where you know people wanted to be closer to home you know there was the worry etc i mean it's kind of an inevitability that there will be more regional you know movement and, and activity and and as you say the the sort of the branch campus model the t e existence is is a way to Ensure relevance um, uh, within within a sort of different framework. Um, can I come back though to a little bit because um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on on Vietnam as a possible emerging, um, or ongoingly emerging perhaps? Because it's been, it's been part of the conversation for for a little while. But um, yeah, just you know a few of your reflections on 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 Vietnam from your last piece, please.
1: Uh, so so on um, VLAN, I would say, um, actually a number, many universities they have been uh, working in VLAN for the last few years. So it's not really, really new, um, I would say. But the recent focus on VLAN was uh, uh, you know, the UK uh, international education strategy, really puts VLAN on the spotlights. And again, another um, um, aspect is the diversification of international students' recruitment. So, um, which um, encourages many, many UK universities are actively engaging with the VLAN market at the moment. As I would say from from multiple levels, and uh, from international students recruitment, strategic level, um, between the two governments and the um, growing economy in VLAN as well, so, I would say it's, it's a country that many universities should really, really think about and consider. But again, going to work in Vietnam is, it would also have its own challenges. Because we have over hundreds of joint programs there already, but the impact is actually quite limited. That's what I have found out. So, there would be still work to be done. Um, but it is on um, our path, probably um where China went through so, many years ago as
0: well hm why um why do you think that the impact is is limited is that in the, the so is it one of the cases where lots and lots of programs but not very many students um or you know is it sort of very limited mobility um what what's what's your sense of why why the the impact perhaps is, is limited? Is it the wrong programs? Is it you know what what is it?
1: Um, a, a number of reasons. Uh, there is no uh, one single reason. Uh, I would say language barrier. That is one element. You know, UK programs they have to be taught by uh, in English. And secondly, is around the perception of TNE. Um, I remember about uh, twenty or fifteen years ago in China, many parents they hold are uh, they are questioning about the legitimacy of mm. our TE program. Uh, also, so I would say it's about the perception of TE in a country. It takes time mm. uh, for it to really, really establish its uh, uh, reputation and quality. Um, I would say also, uh, what I really have learned throughout my uh, career is around how TE has changed, uh, in particular you would, using the case of China, is that uh, uh, many years ago, anyone can just come to China, set up for TE projects, and or they have set up articulation, progression, validation programs with uh, Limited uh, um, teaching or learning involvement mm. in on the TE programs, but during the last few years, the Chinese Ministry of Education introduced that for any TE um, programs or institutes in China, the overseas university they have to contribute to one third of the teaching. Right. So that has really, really changed the perception and quality and the experience mm. of the students, the experience of the partner universities, how they really believe in the tianyi, how their students are taught so differently. And so uh, i would say it's uh, it's a journey that um, um, the country needs to take on.
0: I agree and I think it's it's you know, it, the point you're making about perception, I mean, I think this is, this is entirely valid. I mean, I, I had this experience when I worked in, in Malaysia starting in, in 2008, where um, one of the big pluses of the T&E programs were it's the equivalent of a UK education, but it's delivered at a different price structure. So therefore, it's more affordable which, you know, on, on the one hand of the argument is, oh, that's, that's a really big positive. You know, I, I perhaps can't travel to the UK or I can't get the visa or I, I can't leave my family, but I can still obtain the same qualification. Uh, but you had a lot of students saying, but if it's cheaper, then it can't be the same. It can't be as good. And if it's not in the, you know, you have employees saying, well, is this, is it accredited and is this, you know, have you sort of franchised it, you know, out to sort of a cheaper factory model? And, and a lot of it, as you say, was just around the fact that people didn't, people didn't know. They were very familiar with students going abroad to study, you know, and, and and whatever they did over there, they were at the home place and, you know, they came back. Um, and so I, I agree, but I think it's perhaps not just that, you know, the countries have to develop their understanding, but T&E as a concept has to evolve, right? And it has to continually work on demonstrating its value, demonstrating its importance, you know, integrating into the community. And Something you'd said in, in one of our, our previous conversations um, about this this notion of how do we make programs sustainable you know meaningful but not just commercial and um, I was wondering what you, you know, your reflections were were on on that, given all the, obviously the, the market work that you've that you've done and of course not just market work practical involvement in t e programs. <laughs>
1: Um, so, so we know TE comes with different models. Uh, so franchise validation, also it comes with different size and scale as well. Um, so I would say, if we really want to look at what does the TE really mean uh actually i would, uh, that's something i have been looking at recently you know t e is, uh, is defined in the how t e is defined in the u k then let's think about how would a whole receiving country define TNE. Mm-hmm. so the receiving so at the moment we have we know about t e is about degrees um delivered outside the country, but it doesn't really tell us why we do this. And how we do this as well. So when we come back to looking at our, the receiving countries, how would they define team? So they would probably call it as a collaborative projects. They, would call, mm. project. they would call it as a learning uh, projects. They uh, probably call it as a what what's what, uh, what are others and I couldn't think of at the moment. So so from the receiving end, what does that mean to the receiving countries? How can they really, or the third one is how to the exchange platform or equal space. Yeah, yeah. So they could need different. difference. So position the hosting partner or hosting countries, if they want to, what do they gain from this? So that is how, what a UK university should think about, what's the value you bring to them whether you are bringing in the teaching pedagogy, you are bringing in the um, reputation of this, but yeah, are you promoting uh, research collaboration? Also, our equal platform, really looking at this collaboration is to co-create knowledge with the local university or local partner rather than um, taking on a knowledge consumer or knowledge producer tool end of positions. So I would say it's uh, how do we jointly co-create knowledge that would be a sustainable way in, into the future, I would say.
0: I mean, I think that's a, a wonderful way of looking at it. And it's clearly was not the way it was conceived of uh, at the beginning. And I think probably because of the dependency. You know, a lot of TNE host nations needed T&E programs because they didn't have enough of their own or they, they wanted a particular type that they didn't have or, you know, um, they're looking for, you know, fulfillment of a certain group of population. And so there becomes a sort of, well, if we need you, then you can not do what you want. But there's, there's less of a, It's less collaboration, right? And it's more dependency. And certainly over the last 15, 20 years, as you've been saying, the TNA model has changed. And we, we've seen more of a parity in, in uh capability and now i mean you know i have i have colleagues that work in khda in dubai and you know they, they receive daily almost requests to set up a branch campus in dubai or to set up a program and they can quite literally pick and choose because the market is established you know the quality is assured you know and and it's a case of no no we we don't need you we might want what you have and i think that that creates a, a forced collaboration but as you say if the, if the foreign the sending universities can be of a mind to what can we gain? What can we learn from a partner? How can we, as you say, collaborate and co-create knowledge that has to be more sustainable, right? Because you're, you're doing something that the market needs, the community needs, and you're going to have the, in theory, the support, right? Um, yeah, I wonder, I, I wonder what it will take for that to be the, the primary, <laughs> primary driver of, of activity. Um. Yeah. I
1: would say a number of universities are quite are doing quite well in this space. Already, really recognizing the local value, so recognize the local contextual needs, whether that be the local industry, the uh, teaching staff's uh, um supports. So, so I think a number of UK universities are doing extremely well. But I guess as a sector, is also. Or as some other universities reflect on what we have been operating during the last 10, 20 years, and how can we really consolidate or renew what we do, and so I also want to mention very, very briefly is around how the digital education has also changed the way we we can operate. You know, traditionally we always have have two parties or our um, overseas campus run by the UK universities. But recently, I have also started to see multiple stakeholders and join delivering the program, Mm -hmm. one program. So, and I think that is another interesting model, in particular, that's happening in Europe. started to see that in Europe as well. So, three partners delivering one program. Or even there is one program that they could be have have five partners that students can
0: choose, uh pick and mix. I yeah, to say, yeah, pick how, and how mix. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it's it's funny. I was uh, uh, presented at a an online conference um, at the uh, at the invitation kind of invitation of, of a previous podcast guest, uh, Fabrizio Trufo from uh, UK Narrick, and um uh, the conference was looking at micro degrees, and it was looking at collaboration. This is this is during uh, COVID, um, and uh, my presentation sort of ended with an idea very similar to what you're talking about, which was, well, why couldn't, for example, when you have a TNE hub where there are already multiple providers, and in many cases they're already sharing physical resources, um, sometimes classrooms, usually food um, eateries, and, and maybe sports facilities or, or religious facilities. Um, you know well why couldn't you know under say the 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 organization or the quality assurance body they accredit it but you know university a does this part of the module and university b does this part and c and then you've effectively got this collaborative t and e sort of uh, degree um and and you know based as you say on on uh, local need um which in theory therefore means it's more easier to recruit which in you know obviously leads to you know et cetera et cetera so yeah, i think it's i think it's a wonderful a wonderful idea. Um, I'm wondering though That that sort of I think Leads us quite nicely to um, I wonder if you could talk A, a little bit About uh, the, the recent book um, Of yours that you That you told me about recently Because in particular I think the way in which t is viewed by people By stakeholders Shapes its reality Right so you know How, how the sending university Thinks of what they're doing And it's you know It's well it's our quality And, and we're the the global top 100 or 200 or 300 whatever it is and, and we're coming and we're giving you our degree and and you know we're taking out the money or we're taking out the students and you know the host nation might be thinking well this is a good capacity building or actually they're not listening to us or actually there's more that we could do or you know actually we're quite happy with this you know students parents employers um it changes the reality of what the thing the thing is um so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the book weight because you talk about um traditional standards and definitions um and and we use those in 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 sort of everyday what theory and practice with with international education and and you made the raise the really interesting point well what happens when somebody else defines it or what happens when it's defined from elsewhere i guess in conversation you might have two clashing things but what happens when the second definition becomes more powerful than the the traditionally accepted one right just because of the weight of programs. So I'm, I'm very interested to hear your, your reflections on on this.
1: So also about this new book, um, it's really, I, I came up with this uh, um, idea last year. So working in international education for the last uh, 15, 16 years, I have always been working for UK universities and represents UK universities in working with the the rest of the world that really it struck me what does that even mean international education for them Mm. and uh, so really really looking at how the trends of uh, students mobility and the trends of TNE it's all quite a vertical uh, approach, so mostly from Global South to the Global north. and what does it even mean for the Global South? And so when we look at the most quoted definition of internationalization of higher education, I worked on a project uh, Internationalization of the Curriculum at USA, so I was really trying to understand what does this definition really mean for us. And that really made me realize actually, that is not my perception of international education in China. Mm. That's not really my perception of the international education in Singapore or in South Africa. So, really made me think okay, it's this uh, time that uh, I came up with this idea to work on our book. And uh, so called. Uh, critical reflection uh, of the internationalization of higher education in the Global South, really to uh, challenge and rethink what does internationalization of higher education mean for the Global South. And so whether that be the student mobility, t whether it be about the politics of language, mm. why do we all have to learn uh, in English, for example. And uh, a uh, ranking as well. You know, ranking is a way that is also shifting many uh, things as well. Like earlier you mentioned about uh, uh, traditionally uh, UK-US universities have taken most of the space of top 100 in the QS times. But Again, this is changing. More and more universities are uh, coming up to the top 100s. And I remember particularly on the uh, Times Higher Education Impact r- Ranking recently. Yep. I remember correctly was about how University of Johannesburg ranked number one for one of those indicators. Then suddenly I was talking to my co-editor who works for the university there. So that is a turning point mm. of the politics of ranking. How this, the uh, way <laughs> so. We, so So coming back to this book is really, um, I guess it's just thinking about how we think coming from China. So I feel quite strongly sometimes about this sense of co-creating something rather than just following somebody or have uh, duplicate what others do as well. So really think about how do we what is the value of uh, the knowledge we produce in our own country? Do they have any values or not? Mm-hmm. so I'm sure we do. so it's really to um call for the sector to really think about the knowledge and how what does knowledge mean and how do we really learn about uh, the higher higher education uh so it is um uh, try to create a possibility of equality. I would say that is the ultimate goal. Uh, is how do we create or move into the direction of equality if we can?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. It's it's interesting because I was having a had a conversation with uh, Alfredo Bautista, who's based in Hong Kong um, in the, the previous podcast. Uh, and this issue came up as well, that um, you know he's worked in parts of Asia where the publication um, output is, as with me in, in the UE, is lower than the research that's going on. And, and it, part of it is because of access, part of it's because it's an emerging research culture, part of it's because it's difficult for non-Western countries to publish, perhaps in Western you know, journals. You know, and we were discussing the fact that that changes the way people think of knowledge value, which is if, if knowledge isn't being published um, in a certain country or from a certain country, well, then maybe they're not actually doing research or maybe their their level of, of knowledge is lower. And, you know, if it's much harder, to, it, it sort of changes the perception, both for the outside country, but the people within the country, because, you know, it's that representation issue. Um, and it then feeds itself, which is like, well... You know the knowledge isn't as good because it's not in our journal well yeah i mean that's uh yeah, I mean, that's a, a a ridiculous and yet fairly common perception right so um i think this is a this is a really interesting point and it's you've tied it very well to to not just t and e but internationalization it's what's the point is it is it a transfer of knowledge is it to make everything look like you know the the ten or twelve good universities that engage in this, Are we we all trying to replicate them. Or, actually, is it about increased understanding? Is it about increased sustainability? Is it about sharing of knowledge? Is it is it about you know ultimately breaking down barriers through through communication, right? Um, um which if if we can tie that to the sustainability agenda and not the economic one, we might we might have more 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 success. Um, no, I think that's I think that's fascinating. Can I ask you, because I've heard you say this before, this point about horizontal versus vertical internationalization, is this connected to, to the way it's perceived or is this more of a sort of a process issue?
1: Um, I would say that is the, um, another piece I'm looking at. So I'm looking at the UK students' outbound mobility compared to the international recruitment entity. So at the moment, the U.K. outbound students' mobility are mostly going to, mostly, not uh, exclusively, and other developed Western countries, uh, Europe, uh, U.S., U.S. being a top-one destination. So why would they not go to Global South? Mm. Uh, for example, I was questioning, why would they not go to uh, U.K. universities' T&E uh, program or campus, even though uh, they host delivered uh, as at equivalence level. Mm. So the my my argument in that sense is around how UK students perceive going to those particular areas. They can take on a collaboration approach or learning journey, I would say. Yeah. And on the other side, that is more horizontal, we are I hope I'm coming here to learn from you. And uh, on the international students coming to the UK, uh, the Chinese markets for UK universities are predominantly uh, from uh, developing countries or from the global south. So those students and those host uh, hosting universities, they are chosen the UK because they think UK is better than us. Yeah. So that is more. Uh, so one is uh, our um, I would say a more, um, one is uh, better than the other
0: one. Yeah, yeah come here. simple words. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in almost, in both cases, you know, it, it's a flipped perspective, but developing nations are, are, are sending students to, you know, UK, US, or whatever it might be, with the perception that it's better. And the UK students are staying in sort of the UK, US, English-speaking because I suppose they also in some level think it's better, um you know plus there's also, as you say, there's the politics of language which you know if it's which obviously the the international students still have to go through, but the expectation, as you said as well it's in English, so they'll be fine, as opposed to you know English speaking going the other way and and having to um, navigate just as the international inbound students to the u k have to navigate the language um, uh, it's 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 that difference, isn't it between um, hub and or host and sending like it, it's the traditional quote-unquote that's the pathway students travel from the global south as you say to the global north wherever we or however we define the global north because obviously in some cases you'd be traveling from southeast Asia to Australia so geographically you're you're staying closer um, although you know still a, an enormous enormous shift um, yes I and mean, I, I I really you know, reflecting what you've been saying, it's so integrated, isn't it? Because the way that we think of T&E the way we think of internationalisation, the way we think of mobility, the way we think of access, the way we think of value, the way we think of impact, it underpins everything. It's why why we move in one direction, why we don't move in another direction. Um, uh, <laughs> until such time as that sort of the the next paradigm shift and uh, or the ongoing, I guess, paradigm shift, because as you said, we are we are engaged in this already. Yeah, fascinating. Um,
1: yeah, yeah I, I would also just uh, we, with a um, quite uh, small reference to the internationalization of the curriculum and that's uh, most of the UK universities are working on at the moment. So I, I, I know many universities, they are really committed to this. And uh, uh, I would say I, I even worked on this at UCA is how do we put this... Um, theoretical concepts into real action. So how does that translate to students mm-hmm. when it reaches to the UK? students, What does that really mean to them? Uh, i am there's still some work needs to be done in that area. I, I think once we reach to that level, uh, this will change quite uh, uh, dramatically.
0: Yeah, I think some work needs to be done might be a a little bit of an understatement but um yeah I completely agree with you I think um uh and a lot of that I think at the UK perspective is is you know starting earlier so you know when your students are, are thinking from high school up to university you know the notion of you can travel abroad you can study abroad you can you know it's part of the university experience rather than maybe something students uh you know think about sort of halfway through their first year when they're thinking maybe about moving into houses with friends and, you know, and, um, yeah, it, but it's, again, as you say, that sort of shift in, in the way, the way people think about it, um, so that it becomes a more normal, right? It's, and, and, and I don't mean normal in the, but just as in, yeah, this is something that, you know, at least half of my peers at university have done as opposed to, yeah, there was that one kid in class who went to, you know, and they sort of the the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, uh, outside percentage yeah well i mean this has been fascinating i wonder if i can ask you another ridiculously big question just to, to finish us off um and this is this is another question that my colleague judith um likes to ask uh guests at the end what what do you think is next or what what do you think where do you think international higher education is is going what what could we expect to see in the next five years or or so what do you um what do you think
1: I would say in the next next five years, um, I'm just hearing the echo. I would say in the next five years, there wouldn't be that huge draft change, um, unless university really starts to um, review what we have been doing. I think then it is. It is about time to think about how do we change from scale to impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really really uh, important uh, elements. there is uh, there are already many universities are committing to their social responsibilities at a global level so after that is a new direction and uh, that is happening I would say um also I I would also think about, would like to think about in an ideal world, mm-hmm. is how do we think about the way we think. Ah. So how we have been working during the last twenty years, and how could we do things differently? And uh, yeah, I I say five years probably not much change. <laughs> sure. Uh, but there would be uh, yeah ten twenty years you would never know.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and we'll make sure that we uh, we post the link to the books and uh, all the other pieces that you've you've put up recently so that, you know, colleagues have a chance to, to further engage with with your work. Um, thank you very much in each other. This has been been really, really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for your time and all your insight.
1: Thank you, Chris.